Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden of the University of Johannesburg Center for African Diplomacy and Foreign Policy. Good afternoon, Kobus. Good afternoon, and a、uh, very good afternoon to、uh, to a return guest,、uh, Johanna Janssen from Roskilde University in Denmark, just outside of Copenhagen.、Uh, Johanna is really one of the world's experts, and I'm going to flatter you here because I think you are the preeminent expert. And Kobus, you and I have gotten in trouble for calling somebody the preeminent <laughs> expert, right? So, but in this、yeah. case, I think it's absolutely defensible that Johanna is in fact the preeminent expert on China DRC relations with a particular emphasis. On the Sicko Mines deal, and Johanna has been on our show almost two years ago now、uh, to kind of talk about the Sicko Mines deal, and she's back to kind of give us an update. So, good afternoon, Johanna from Copenhagen or near Copenhagen, Denmark. Thank you, Eric. That's very kind of you. And so, as always, we have、uh, multiple topics on the show. Today, we're going to focus on two instead of three. Uh, so our first topic is going to be the raging debate that's going on、uh, between Deborah Braudigam, who is、uh, a preeminent Cobus. Notice what I'm saying here: a preeminent <laughs> China Africa scholar.、Uh, we got in trouble actually for calling uh, uh, Deborah Braudigam the preeminent China Africa scholar. So we're going to call her one of the more preeminent、uh, China Africa scholars. She's in this debate right now over a report that was released by Aid Data, and this is a collective of different、uh, or Uh, different organizations that released a very controversial report on、uh, Chinese aid figures in Africa from the period of 2000 to 2011. So we're going to talk about this debate and the merits of it, and talking about media-sourced researching. This is a very new field that's come up, and since we have two excellent researchers on our panel today, we will get their opinions on that. Secondly, we're going to get an update from the DRC on the Sicko Mines deal.、Uh, Johanna spent、uh, six months there last. Year doing、uh, finishing up some research,、uh, she's building her PhD that she will defend next year, and、uh, and has just done some really incredible work on the Sicko Mines deal. And also, what does the Sicko Mines deal represent in terms of the broader China Africa relationship? In part because the size of this deal is just so big, it does have some symbolic value. And so we'll get、uh, we'll get her perspective on that. Okay, Kobus, let's start right off the top with the the aid data. Why don't you just help us set up what is first. The the big issue, and then I'm going to explain kind of who Aid Data is and, and get into it. So first, tell us a little bit about what the report said and why is it controversial. So one of the difficult things about about looking at aid,、um, Chinese aid to Africa, is that it's very hard to keep track of how much there is.、Um, and another problem is that it's the the, the way that、uh, that aid is defined in China is very different from the West. So it it becomes very complicated to to actually. Say China has given so many millions of dollars, so many billions of dollars, you know, kind of to to Africa as aid,、um, and that's kind of what what this aid data project is tries to do,、um, and to do it through setting up a database of different, you know, of, of、uh, different kind of media reports about re- reporting about different. Different projects, and then using that as a base to try and put together numbers. So they came up with numbers saying that there's about seventy-five billion dollars in financial commitments,、um, and you know we'll we'll come back to that. You need to pack that out that that term,、um, and representing about one thousand seven hundred individual projects in fifty-one countries. 
Okay. And then that immediately got jumped on by lots of other scholars. Yes. Okay. So let and so let me just tell you a little bit more about who aid data is. Then we're going to go into their methodology and kind of break down some of the, uh, the some of the data itself. So the new estimates come from from the database compiled by aid data, which is a partnership between the College of William and Mary. BYU, Brigham Young University in Utah in the United States, and uh, and Development Gateway, and it was also for the Center for Global Development as well was involved in this. Uh, so again, the key issue here is this use of the media-based approach to data collection. What they are saying is basically this is a new way uh, of, 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 of collecting data, and this is done in part because the Chinese and even the Africans to some extent lack the necessary transparency that we would have, say, in another part of the world where the IMF and the World Bank and researchers like Johanna go in and document things and it's much more transparent and see-through. Here, as we know with the China-Africa relationship, one of its hallmarks is the fact that we just don't know a lot. So what Aid Data did is they went through media reports and, and using a very, very complex kind of formula, you know, checked off and said they basically calculated that there's $75 billion of financial commitments that China has made to Africa from the period of 2000 to 2011. So, Johanna, when you looked through this, when you saw this report, did your stomach, stomach sink and go, oh, God. You know, or did you kind of go, oh, this is kind of interesting what they're doing? What was your first gut reaction when you saw how they were doing it and what they what their conclusions were? Well, I think I read through the debate. I was looking at Deborah's comments and I looked at the report and I looked at um, the response that they gave also as a team um, that wrote the, the paper and that that's behind the database. And I think there are two things here. I'm very interested in data. I'm very interested in the real world. I'm very interested in having research that is based on real data, correct data. And so I think it's a very interesting initiative for them to launch a database where other researchers can go in and correct, like somebody went to Malawi, researched this project, can go in and say it was not actually 1.2 million, it was actually 3 million, and correct. And in that way, we can have a kind of a cumulative exercise where um, we build up together a database where we can kind of get things right in terms of this. I mean, and this would go not just for Chinese aid, but for, for anything in reality that we're trying to map as researchers. Now, when you look what at I the... See, oh, I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, but so what I... So that I... I I'm, I'm, I'm completely in favor of that. But then what I think the problem is here, what happened was that the, in the working paper they wrote... Um, they draw conclusions based on the data that they had. There we go. And I think that this is where, I mean, they suggest some numbers and they try to draw tentative conclusions. And this is where I um, I fully agree actually with Deborah Brotigam's critique because what she says is that, look, at this stage, the data is not, as she puts it, cleaned. Um, so there might be errors. Um, and the problem is when people go and look at those numbers, I mean, people meaning journalists or people that don't have a lot of time to clean or or double check data they will take the figures and use them maybe without double checking which um, is exactly so is what the, they did i mean if you looked at the press yeah, coverage really, yeah. if you looked at the press coverage of this report there what i found so interesting and this is what Braudigam i think was arguing for saying that people are going to well you just contend in your first part of your comments johanna were the fact that you know this is a work in progress data set it's not firm it's something that is kind of an open source wiki style thing and people contribute to it and update it yet 
almost universally the press coverage kind of gave it as firm data saying that China committed $75 billion, you know, point final, that was it. They didn't kind of contextualize that. The second thing that they also did was they didn't, as far as I know, uh, didn't, I didn't see it at the sourcing of that data set. Did you, when you were looking through it, could you find the sources that they referred to for, to make up the, uh, their conclusions? Well, I haven't been able, actually, I've been trying to access um, the, the, the database itself, and I didn't make it work. So for technical reasons, I haven't looked at that. Yeah, but that in the working paper, um, they do um, state certain things that, you know, they put it that, for example, I mean, the cases that I know is that, for example, in Ghana, there was a pledge of a $3 billion credit line from China Development Bank. And as far as I know, um, only about, I mean, not even a third of that has been dispersed. And it was subject to a controversy with the IMF, etc. It, but it, they have marked it as in, under implementation, which is partly true, but pos- partly also not true. Because, I mean, this is where it's so important, as Deborah says, to dig into the case. And this takes a lot of time. So, but my point is to say, I think what they could have done, I mean, the the Center for Global Development Working Paper, they could have used it to make a methodological point, which I think is a completely valid thing to do with a, with a, any article working paper, to say, we're making a methodological claim, we think this is a good way, as you say, I mean, Wikipedia style or anyone can contribute to to incrementally develop our understanding of this. But the problem with the working paper is that it made actual claims based on data that was not verified. What also they could have done is to say, we're making a methodological point here with the paper, and we're also making a call for people that do the painstaking kind of fieldwork that Deborah Brodigam calls for to go in and then verify. And maybe then in two years' time, or one year or two years, when the database is a bit more mature, and people like myself and others have had time to go in and verify, um, then they could maybe use it to base to base um, a working paper on that data. But it's a little premature. Um, and the last point, what I think is really important, is that we as scholars have a really big responsibility to be careful with words, to be careful with claims, to be careful with data. Because people that have as their profession to deliver analysis fast, such as journalists. They will draw on on our work, us that have as a job to do slow, in-depth work. We have to be very careful with what we say, what data we put out, because it will be used. And that is our job also, to make sure that our data is usable. So this is, but I do support, um, you know, the aid data, their response that in, in the way that they're saying, look, we're saying, we never said that this was complete. We wanted it to be updated. But the problem is the working paper makes claims. So I support the first one that this is a good initiative. But the translation to how it's being used by journalists or others, this this transition kind of needs to be padded. It needs firmness. And this is what Deborah means, that it needs to be clean. You cannot just say that it's usable for anyone um, yeah. because it's difficult to use these things. It's not fast. It's difficult. It's slow. It's, it takes a lot of you know sweat and time to go into this data. And this is kind of a transition between scholarly life, where people know how to do this, they have the time to do it, or they take the time to do it, and the quick kind of news world, where it's just a different pitch comes right. together. And this is where, you know, and, and it's the news or the journalistic work that most people read, and then again you're into this kind of spin of, of wrong data and 
and misunderstandings about it. So. And there's real policy implications to sometimes these data. I mean, you and I both know from our time in the DRC that, you know, it is now gospel that five million people were killed in the DRC during the, civil, during the period of the Civil War. Of course, that number was, was invented by the International Rescue Committee. It was, it's not a, a research piece number. There is no, of course, way to validate that number. It was just a made-up number. But yet it has a real strong influence in policy circles, particularly in places like Brussels and Washington. So these numbers, as you say, matter a lot. Kobus, you know, I share Johanna's kind of split view on this. On the one hand, it's really an exciting project. I mean, the idea of crowdsourcing information, and certainly to some extent very similar to what we're trying to do here by getting lots of people to contribute, but it certainly does lack a certain stability and accuracy that it can be easily misinterpreted. Also, again, this question of the sourcing where we don't know the quality of information going going in, uh, you know, and so I'm, I'm curious to kind of get your thoughts on on, on, on the project. It seems to me that the two approaches, the, the A-data approach and uh, Deborah Browsing's approach, they seem to be f- philosophically very different, like two different philosophies of what data is. Um, you know, the A-data one seems to assume that data is inherently imperfect and that it can also always be improved and that you need to throw a bunch of it out there in order to get a whole crowd of people working on it and then slowly but surely it'll it'll evolve into something that's more useful. While Browsing's obviously is a more, she's a more individualist worker. She, she you know, she, she puts her name on her research, and she works a lot, a lot like she's, she's called herself. That you know, kind of, she said herself that she works a lot like an investigative reporter, um, where individual trustworthiness is your is your biggest calling card. Um, and so you yourself need to you need to work slowly and carefully and make sure that everything is right because you are individually responsible for it. Okay. Um, and you know kind of it, it seems that, that those two in, in a perfect world those two would be would be you know kind of backing each other up. But I think at the moment they haven't the A data, one of the problems with the A data thing is they haven't really to my mind set up the real mechanisms for it to back each other up. You know kind of they haven't made it easy enough for for people to contribute and and work together, you know, kind of to produce new data. And I guess what I would have liked to have seen is a little bit, and this is reaffirming Johanna's point here, you know, in bright, bold red letters saying, this is a work in progress. This, these numbers should not be taken as conclusive. This is, this is, this is a beta project, basically. Uh, and, of course, they didn't do that because they came out with some firm numbers. So I'm going to give you two quotes here uh, just on both sides of this debate. First, let me go to uh, Deborah Browdigam's blog. And if you're not familiar with Browdigam, uh, she is one of the most preeminent Sino-African scholars. She is very, very well known in the United States in particular. She frequently testifies uh, both uh, before the Senate and the House. She was at American University. Now she's at Johns Hopkins University. And she's got a, a really amazing blog, and it's the ChinaAfricaRealStory.com. That's all one word, ChinaAfricaRealStory.com. Let me quote you, quote something from her blog right here. Although aid data authors stress in their comments that the results are tentative, that they can't vouch for much of the data, they didn't write like that when discussing the numbers. We read about the, quote, top recipients of Chinese finance as though each of the numbers aggregated on their list is equally firm. That's simply not the case, as their own database points out. Johanna, this is your your point as well that 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 they you know they have a split personality here. They one side say you know the data is flexible, but on the other side, their conclusions are firm. No. So let me now see. Exactly. Yeah, and so let me now read you a rebuttal from from Aid Data because they've been going back and forth both on Twitter and on their various blogs. 
Now, and this is where I, I'm going to come back to the to both of you as researchers and get your point because, again, who was actually conducting this research became another point here. Um, Braudigam, this is from aid data themselves in their rebuttal to Braudigam. Braudigam's argument seemed to suggest that only a small group of people who she considers to be experts should be allowed to collect and analyze data on the nature, distribution, and effects of Chinese development finance. We disagree with this, quote, gatekeeper approach to social science and expect that it will slow progress in this narrow subfield uh, of the academy. So I have two gatekeepers here on the panel. Uh, gatekeeper number one, uh, Johanna, you, uh, what do you think of that? No, I disagree um, wholeheartedly with that uh, point. I don't think at all that Deborah Brottingham has a gatekeeper approach. Um, on the con contrary, um, she's very open and engaging. And I mean, she, the point that she's making on is more a call for rigor. Rigor, rigor, rigor. And she's very rigorous in her work. And, and you know, there's a, there's a big need for more rigor in analysis of, of Chinese impulses on the African continent, be it aid, investment, um, or, or other forms of engagement like commerce. Um, so I, I don't, her critique is not that, you know, you, you need to be a certain, it, it's more, you be a certain expert. It's more the nature of the work, how you do it. Okay. And I mean, I think a master student or even like a BA student writing a thesis could do really good work. Go and look in depth on a project, find out what's going on, what are the different rumors, why are the people saying the different things. But the point, I, as, as I read Deborah Brottingham, is to say that this is something that cannot, you know, you cannot do it. Um, it's not easy to do aggregate level research and say these and these different countries, this and this happens because this is so complex and each product is so complex. Um, it's more a matter of, matter of method than who you are. You know, it's what you do and how you do it. Okay, well, let's let's kind of go into that and use your your field of study as an example. Uh, I don't know if the aid data people actually went in the field and and conducted their research on the ground. I, I sincerely no, doubt I don't it. Think, I, don't I don't think, think they, they did. did. I think they sat on the internet and collected uh, media references. But yeah, what what they did, I think, uh, is to use media and and triangulate it with other available. Okay. Um, so available they, data. So I see they reference, like I read, uh, they reference all the people that have written on Congo, for example. So they have read all the existing research, also those um, like myself, uh, Gregory Temple Salter, and others that have written on Sikumin that have actually, has actually conducted, conducted field work. So right. they have looked at, you know, the available data kind of. Okay. From a desk, it's a desktop. Uh, it's approach. a desktop approach. From from your experience in terms of analyzing, you know, China's investment, aid and otherwise, in the DRC infrastructure, uh, you know, the the Sicko Mines deal. Do you think you could have come to your conclusions without having gone on on on, on location to actually talk with people? Is this some? Is this a type of study that you can actually do from the desktop? No. Okay. I mean, that's uh, that's my suspicion as well, and that's where I think it's flawed. Um, is that yeah, I think you know there's so many ambiguities in 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 the China Africa financing relationship that uh, you know in Cobus I'm going to come to you on this one and and you and I uh, you know we've been in the media for a long time I've been a journalist for 25 years one of the characteristics and hallmarks that I know of the journalism covering both Africa but particularly the China and Africa is it hasn't been terribly impressive. 
um, and the sourcing of information, as you and I have talked about for many months now, a couple years, um, has not always been that stellar. Um, oftentimes, the sourcing relies on UN officials. There is oftentimes a Western bias, an institutional bias in the sourcing of their data, which comes from World Bank, IMF, UN. Uh, they don't have access, for example, to China, China Development Fund data because no one does. So there is just inherently a Western bias in the sourcing. That's not me suggesting that, uh, that, the, that there's anything wrong with that per se, but it is flawed in one sense. So if, if they're basing their data on media reports and the quality of media reporting uh, is often not strong or at least not consistent, what does that also tell us about the reliability of the data? Yeah, look, I mean, you know, kind of obviously I'm in media analysis, you know, kind of that, that's my field. So I feel strongly that, that, um, you know, keeping track of flows of information about a certain, a certain aspect is itself a valuable thing to do because those information, that, that kind of information is a little bit like, like, you know, like, like kind of, it's tracking the wind through the movement of the leaves, right? Kind of you, you, you know, kind of the way that information gets sent back and forth and the way that people respond to it, that has its own influence in the world. Um, but, you know, then I think you need to then make clear that, that what you, that you're dealing with a certain meta level of, of analysis, you know, kind of where you, where you are looking at, you know, you're reading the wind from the movement of the, of, of the leaves. You're not necessarily tracking the wind itself, you're, you're tracking its indications. Um, and, you know, kind of, I feel a little bit like they, they, they were jumping a little bit too quickly from saying like, okay, this has all been reported to we can now, you know, kind of, you know, kind of take that this is, you know, the, the fact that it's been reported means that it has a, a certain amount of reality. For me, the fact that it has, that it's been reported, that is the interesting thing, you know, kind of, and um, because the fact that when things get reported, that tends to have implications in real life. But you need to be really careful when you do that, you know, kind of among other reasons, because, you know, for example, one, one of the, one of the, um, Ideas that um, that that Brattingham raised on her on a one of her blog posts about this is, for example, the issue of Chinese land grabs in Africa, and we know after after a few years of of, of on the ground research that there has been almost no real Chinese land grabs in Africa, but. And we also know from from working on China Africa project that you are you know kind of cutting through thickets of reports on Chinese land grabs in Africa based on rumor, and you need to be really careful when you know kind of when when you're looking for for new research about you know kind of and you're, that you're not just dealing with old rumors that are being recycled. Um, so you know I, I feel that they need to, you know they, they seem to be lacking a little bit. They're, they're lacking the underground research, but they're also lacking the sophistication of media research. Because you know, if, if you know people who come from media research, they know this, and this is this is what they do. This is what they, the kind of analysis that they do. They they do it very carefully. Um, so it feels a little bit like it's, it's dropping between two different academic fields. Well, another point that that was brought up uh, was you know where again this come this question of the sourcing. We've tried to get into the report, as Johanna said, it's difficult because it's crashing. So I haven't actually seen the sourcing of it, but they did mention in their report that 47% of the uh, of all the media sources cited were actually uh, done were correct me if i'm wrong here what i said was they were 47% were uh, in chinese were confirmed by a contain at least one chinese media source so they actually hired some chinese language uh, media editors to review some of the chinese sourcing but one of the again that doesn't make me feel better because the quality of chinese media uh, varies so much from largely from mediocre to poor 
Um, so again, that is something that's kind of you know questionable as well. Is was what the Chinese sourcing is doing, and 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 how are are they using it? You know, a lot of times it's Xinhua that's then repicked up by Global Times, which is then picked up by the China Daily. You know, each one puts its own header on it, so you don't actually know if there was original reporting or not, and it just kind of gets lost down their food chain. So so that's one other key、yeah. point. One other thing that I was frustrated, and this is I'd like to get your your point of view on this, Johanna, is in the media coverage of this report, it also didn't provide some broader contextualization. One point that stood out for me in the report was that while the Chinese committed seventy five billion dollars reportedly、uh, between two thousand and two thousand eleven, that was less than the ninety billion dollars that the U.S. committed during the same time. And I thought that was a really interesting figure there, because we have this perception of the Chinese in Africa, and in fact, the coverage of this has been like China is this massive kind of force, you know, taking on Africa. When in fact, it's still secondary to to some of the the other the legacy powers in Africa and the traditional donors. So, did that、uh, does does that surprise you in any way? I cannot comment on that number because I don't know how. I mean, there's so many. Subtleties to these numbers, so I don't want to say yay or nay to that、um, But, because I don't know how they put together the US number. I don't know the figures, if it's aid or if it's OOF, if this comes from private banks, if it comes from you know、um, kind of other financing institutions. Well, yeah,、um, really. Where did the US ninety billion come from as well? So yeah, I don't. Yeah, exactly. And I'm not saying it's wrong. <laughs> I just don't know the figures. I cannot really comment. It、uh, another. Oh, go ahead. I I had another thought.、Um, When I read this, and it's the kind of discursive frame within the, within which、um, this endeavor of of the of the A Data project is placed, because it is clearly a U.S. look on things.、Um, it seems to be assumed that because China is not transparent, then now we need to make it transparent. Because and they even write at, at one point in the working paper that the U.S. government and the U.S. Exim Bank have been frustrated about not finding data about Chinese aid, and they also compare their so in the in the graphs they compare OECD, U.S. and China, and this is a U.S.-based project, and somehow it makes me a little uneasy.、Um, that's just more just like an epistemological point. You know why China? I don't really see a motivation. I think I think there are good motivations to be made, and I also have to justify my own work because I also work on China.、Um, but I don't really see that, and I can sense there's a U.S. bias that makes me a little, little uncomfortable.、Um, just because I, I don't think academic research, even if it's based in the U.S., should be motivated by the fact that the U.S. Exim Bank and the U.S. government are frustrated about not finding out about data. There、mm-hmm. should be something more to it, you know. Yeah.、Um, yeah. And yeah. Kobus,、yeah. let me give you final yeah, thoughts on this sorry, subject before we move yeah, on. Yeah, like you know, kind of, I completely, you know, I completely agree.、Um, you know, it seems it's also it's striking. You know, uh, um, uh, several reports that I've read in the last while have made the point that China, while a, a massive investor. And, And trading partner with Africa is—it's they're, they're far from the only ones. I mean, there's you know there's there's a, a, Africa has a very com- complex kind of trade and investment、um, profile at the moment with lots of smaller like middle power countries investing heavily in certain areas in certain countries. South Africa itself kind of playing a larger role. So the the 
you know, kind of only being interested in China and ignoring Brazil, ignoring India, ignoring the complexity of, of African economy makes you wonder whether this, you know, is influenced by security concerns and larger kind of geopolitical kind of concerns that, that's coming out of Washington. I mean, I don't know whether it is. It just, I got the same little bit of a, uh, you know, kind of a, you know, little bit of a fear or like mm-hmm. anxiety when, when, I, when I saw that. So that, 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 that kind of very narrow focus just on China, um, as if all yes, of the, 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 very, the wide complexity of all of this investment matters less than just the, the fact of the Chinese investment. Well, this is yeah, the, somehow yeah. I, I, yeah, I think I think you know I'm fine with them looking at China. Just a little bit of a discussion around why you know would make yeah, the reader exactly. or make the whole endeavor a lot more. Um, yeah, just would legitimize the whole endeavor a lot more and give it more academic credibility. I think. Well, a lot of ambivalence, a lot of ambiguity. This is a, a very interesting subject. It's, it's part of this kind of broader, uh, you know, WikiLeaks, uh, Wikipedia. Uh, I think this open source movement that they're they're trying to kind of take, uh, you know, something like the China-Africa finance relationship and put it in there. It will no doubt be an on, a source of ongoing tension and discussion uh, between the academic community and, and this new method, methodology that they're using of media-based researching. Uh, we encourage you to go check out Deborah Baudigam's blog at uh, China Africa Real Story. You can also then follow AIDATA. It's china.adata.org. And also the Center for Global Development is cgdev.org. That's Center for Global Development ev.org so you can follow all that uh, those discussions we of course are posting a lot of these discussions on our facebook page at facebook.com slash china africa project although cobus you know we haven't gotten a lot of feedback on the subject because i think it's a little bit inside baseball for academic wonky types uh so you kind of post this debate up on facebook and there hasn't been an enormous amount of response to it kind of met with some like whatever okay (laughs) you know so uh But if you're interested in this subject, we'd like to hear from you. We'll post uh, we'll post some more comments on this. Let's go on to our second and final subject today, uh, and really, it's uh, it's one of my favorite subjects in part because. I have a personal connection to the DRC. Uh, I lived there for a brief period, but I traveled there for a period of five years and uh, and just became very attached to it. And it's also where my interest in China-Africa relations began. Uh, Johanna is, as I mentioned at the top of the show, um, if not an expert, a burgeoning expert and, and one of the leading authorities on Sino-DRC relations with a particular emphasis on the Sicko Mines deal. In March of this year, she published uh, an article in the Review of African Political Economy and uh, the Sicko Mines Agreement revisited prudent Chinese banks and risk-taking Chinese companies. Now, this was following, if I'm correct, this article that you published was based on your last research trip where you spent six months on the ground. Is that correct? Three months, yeah. Okay, three months on the ground. Um, And so, uh, okay, right off the top, you know, we're not going to go into the history of the Sicko Mines deal because, Johanna, you and I spoke a couple years ago and we kind of went through the basics and I'll kind of bring this link back up so people can kind of go on to that. But I want to kind of, you know, just start off by talking about the importance of the Sicko Mines deal and and who are the key players and the actors so that we can kind of set up our conversation. Mm -hmm. So uh, first is there's there's two main Chinese actors that are here. One is China Railroad and also one is China Hydro. And these are two of China's largest state-owned enterprises. China China Railway Engineering Corporation, CREC. Mm-hmm. In abbreviation, and, and Sino Hydro. And Sino Hydro. So those are the two Chinese, right. the main Chinese players. Are there other Chinese players involved? Smaller ones. Um, yeah, there's the 
one percent stake of something um, of uh, China Huojo Cobalt. Okay. But I haven't. This is where I have to put in a caveat because um, I haven't been able to access um, the exact stakeholding. This okay. is um, something but, that's being kept very secretly, so I don't know that. But, but the main from what we know, here are, DREC are, are the and then Sina Hydro, and then and we on, have a one percentage of another company. Yeah. On the who's, who's on the Congolese side on this one? Well, the counterpart um, is the this well state-owned but not formally a parastatal anymore. Jecamine, which is la General Carrière des Mines, which is one of the Congolese um, state-related and mining companies. Jecamine also has joint ventures with a lot of other mining companies, uh, external investors in Congo. So all mining ventures in Congo has to take place in a joint venture with either Jacobin or one of the other parastatals. So, so this joint venture with two Chinese companies is actually a joint venture like other investments in the mining sector in Congo. So now when this deal was announced in 2007, uh, at the time it was kind of published as a $9 billion deal, and that just scared the crap out of the IMF in part because uh, it, the size of the deal had never been seen before. Uh, in Africa. And so it was really a groundbreaking deal. Ultimately, it wasn't a $9 billion deal. It kind of came down, to, I think, from some of your research down to, to 5 or $6 billion. Is that correct? Um, well, these numbers, I would, they have been difficult to track down what's actually what. Um, there was one or two different numbers mentioned in the original uh, Memorandum of Understanding in 2007. Then there was a joint venture agreement in December 2007 in which another men- number was mentioned. Then in April 2008, there was a convention de collaboration, which is one form of contract in the mining sector in Congo, where no numbers were mentioned. The only thing that was mentioned was that the loan was going to continue to finance as long as um, finance infrastructure projects as long as the mine was profitable, which was not what was said earlier. Uh, on, you know, so that was, so in that main agreement, there was no direct 9 billion or 6 billion or anything mentioned, um, or any limit to it. But then there was a, the 9 billion one was extrapolated, taken from the 2007 joint venture agreement, then mixed up with the provisions in the Convention de Collaboration from April 2008, and then made into a kind of no. idea of 9 billion. So this is I'm um, just to just to caution the listeners that you know these numbers are very are very flexible. Um, the initial numbers numbers are uh, yeah, it's difficult to set down what was actually what and because of the secrecy around the agreement we it's difficult to actually confirm. Okay. But then what happened was that as this happened in kind of a critical moment in the DRC's aid relations generally because Hippic Detrolip was on the cards and this was regarded by to traditional donors and also by China then on the IMF board as a, an important thing for Congo in order to get on with post-conflict reconstruction um, and, and state building to get debt relief so that the country could then again become eligible and start lending. So, and then the deal was renegotiated, um, you know, uh, to confirm to the kind of demands that was set in, within the HIPAA process, highly indebted poor countries uh, process. And then in the contract amendment, so this is a long story to say that in the contract amendment, there is actually limits to the number, to the figure on infrastructure investments, and that's $3 billion. Okay. But, but the mining investment still is, that number is a little fluid. The last number I've heard 
was provided um, at a public seminar by the Ministry of Mines, Kabululu, in November in Kinshasa, and it's a 3.2 million investment in, in the mining component. Million uh, mining or billion? Component. Million or billion? Billion. 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 Okay, 3.2 billion. So, so all of this is a long story to say that these numbers are very fluid and difficult to tell what's what because well, of the secrecy. Well, here, here you go. Many different agreements. This is the problem that we were talking about at the top of the show. I mean, if you, you know. So, okay, but and just one last basic question before we actually get into the conversation of where we are today. The minerals that they're mining for, my understanding from your work is that they're both copper and cobalt. Is there anything else? Well, the minerals that they will be mining for. They will be so mining for. Work has, I just, I, yeah, I just got word that they have restarted work. I mean, in this article that I that I published in March in in Europe, um, I was just charting the ups and downs, kind of saying that they have, they have had discussions with different banks, but now I've heard that they have restarted work. They have started work, but I mean, starting work means they have to build a whole. Um, I mean, they have to. Um, organize the whole practicalities around starting mining. So the mining has not yet started, but this is a very long-term project. And this is something that one has to keep in mind. Anything in the mining sector is very long-term. This is nothing that just happens overnight. So just to get back to your question, yeah, it's about copper and cobalt, mainly uh, copper, but also um, cobalt. Now, the, the, the DRC is is one of the most corrupt countries on, on the planet. It's one of the most difficult. It doesn't really have a functioning rule of law. It has a political system that is extraordinarily weak outside of Kinshasa, um, and it's one of the most difficult places for the Chinese to do business. When you when you did your update on on where we are now, um, what was the status in terms of how the Chinese were faring in this in this extremely volatile environment? Well, I think first I would just want to disaggregate a little bit with 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 Chinese quote unquote because there are a lot of different Chinese actors in Congo. Yes, everything then from the um, embassy and and um, ministry of commerce, um, people that work with the Chinese aid program in Congo, and then we have a lot of small scale kind of co- uh, people that have factories and shops, and they're not uh, necessarily have anything to do uh, with, the, with directly with the embassy. And then we have Sikomin, and these are big state owned companies um, that come in and work, and they have close, you know, relations to the embassy and also have, of course, support then from financial, different forms of financial support from the Chinese financial system. Um, So if, and that's what we're talking about today, just to make that clear to the listeners that I'm not talking about, you know, the small scale restaurant owners or or shop owners here. And I think what they um, have encountered, as I write in the piece, and I encourage also uh, the readers to download the piece and read it for more detail, is more that these things take time in Congo, and what happened is that China Exim Bank, that had originally that has financed um, the initial infrastructure works in Congo, they had some concerns um, with regards to um, the securities of, of their investments. They wanted to make sure they could get their money back, so they were in a discussion, and had the bank had made certain demands that then weren't met, so they pulled out. Which meant then that um, the companies, um, China Railway Engineering Corporation and Sino Hydro, had to pay back the loans to the bank, and they were sitting with all the risk. And this is the main point I'm making in this article: that the Chinese companies, now they're state-owned, um, of course, so they're related to the state, um, of course, but they were sitting with all the risk, and the, they are the ones that have initiated um, this deal to start with, because they were looking for. Um, profitable business in the mining sector, of course, 
um, which has to do with the Chinese um, government's ambition to go out and secure resources. But they were also looking for business, but because these are primarily construction companies. Um, Sino-Hydro was one of the companies that created the Three Gorges Dam. Um, and Krek, uh, China Railway Engineering Corporation, has been creating, uh, has been, sorry, building um, roads and railways and houses and all over China. So, and, and as you know, it's a very big company. So they were also looking for business in Congo. And this was a way for them to finance um, infrastructure projects. So what happened then um, is that they stood for a moment without a financing agreement. But And I spoke to, to the economic council at the embassy about this and, 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 and the Chinese companies. And there was never any, to my mind, there was never any um, sus- suspicion that this agreement would kind of never, um, never materialize. It was just that this takes time. It take, took time for them to settle with the bank. And now I don't know who they have a financing arrangement with now. I haven't because I'm back from fieldwork now and I'm writing. But these things take time. And I think in China, Africa um, analysis in general, or the kind of Western expectation of China was that China would do everything fast. But I think people kind of misunderstood China and Chinese bankers, Chinese companies, what they do, because they're also very serious. They want their money back. They want to do good business and good business take time. The mining sector is a, it's a slow place to do business because, you know, you have to do all the feasibility studies. You have to discuss with the banks and you have to settle and make sure that, the you know, that bank can get the money back. So it was never going to be fast. And I remember like, I made a comment back in to a journalist back in, I think, four or five years ago that we'll see, you know, how much of this will materialize because this is complex matters. It's a lot of money. So I don't know if they ran into trouble per se or if this was just standard procedure. I think it's more standard procedure, particularly in Congo, that you run into some kind of trouble that it takes some time to sort out. So that's my reading, that that this was going to be so always. And I don't think anyone on the Chinese side thought that it was going to be fast but you know they had a serious intention with this and they were prepared to go through with it and i i think they will yeah johanna um where does this leave the congolese government now um you know kind of you mentioned that obviously you know kind of they were in in the infrastructure provision they the chinese companies were under a lot of pressure to to produce infrastructure pretty quickly um you know, and to full to produce it in time for elections. You know, kind of, and to be used by the government. Like, what is the what is the position of the government now um, in relation to paying back the loan? You know, kind of now that you know now that they went through the whole re- refinancing process. Well, I don't think anything has changed in terms of that. The Chinese companies, and as I write in the article, also worked on very short deadlines to to um, to deliver on some of the projects that were important for for Kabila and for the government ahead of the 50th anniversary anniversary of independence and and and, and they did that and and that was financed uh, by Sikumin and nothing has really changed because this, the mine is still going to repay the loans um you know the infrastructure projects will still be implemented the only thing that's happened is that it it's taking a little longer, and I'm sure the Congolese government or, or President Kabila would like these things to, you know, to happen ASAP, um, to be able to show to the electorate that you know, that that efforts are being made. But other than the time aspect, I don't see anything necessarily changing. 
But I think, and this is very important, that there was an expectation in Congo that China would somehow be different from the, you know, the the, the quote-unquote Western donors, in which the expectation is that they take so long, they make all these demands, whereas with the Chinese, it would be fast. And I think that was a misunderstanding from the beginning. Uh, the Chinese are as careful as, you know, other actors in terms of making sure that, in this case, because it's an investment, right, uh, on, on commercial terms, um, that to get their money back. But I don't, there was an, um, a, there's a discrepancy in terms of the the realities of Chinese activity in general and in Africa uh, in particular, um, which is, you know, just that they're just like any other actors. They have to do things according to procedure. Um, things take time. And the expectation in the population and then some of the decision makers, I think, too, that, that this would be faster. Uh, when you look back now on this deal, because you've, you've been following it for a number of years now, and, and we start to see it take shape a little bit now. Uh, do you do you get the sense who's benefiting more from this arrangement? And I ask this because the BBC a couple of years ago did a report where basically they said the na- the way that the sickle mines agreement was structured that the Chinese were benefiting far more than the Congolese were, even with the, the huge numbers. You know, you 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 quote four hundred and fifty eight million dollars in infrastructure has been uh, has been built since two thousand and eight, which is a huge number for the DRC. But yeah. even with those big numbers. That the that the Chinese are going to benefit from this relationship far more. What's your reading of the of the situation in terms of who benefits? Well, Eric, we do not know. Ah, okay, that's a fair answer. That is, and, and I will I will qualify my response is that um, anything related to I mean, there's a lot of things that we do not know in terms of this because there is a joint venture agreement. Um, that has not yet been published, uh, a 2008 one. There has been um, some additions to the contract published by the Ministry of Mines in Congo um, that refers to to this agreement, which we haven't seen. And there is a 2007... Now it becomes very technical, huh? but forgive me, it's important to explain. There's a 2007 joint venture agreement and which all the, where all the taxes, tax, tax um, um, obligations for SICOMIN is regulated, but that one has since been replaced with another one that we haven't seen. But we do not know what, what, how much tax SICOMIN will pay or you know, what the tax regime will be like because this is what will determine in the end you know, who benefits. So, I mean, if the tax regime resembles uh, that of other mining ventures in Congo, then we can say that Sikumin is at least not different. Then we also know that the tax regime in Congo in general for mining companies is extremely generous towards foreign investors. Um, but that's a whole different matter. But in the case of Sikumin, there's a lot of things that we do not yet know. Now, I've been told um, by respondents during my field work that once Sikumin has paid back the loans that will finance the infrastructure investments, um, Sikumin will start paying taxes according to the mining code. But this we do not know because we haven't seen the contract where this is regulated. And I mean, this is part um, of the reason why it's so difficult to tell with certainty anything around Sikomins. I don't want to claim that this is, you know, to the benefit of the Chinese more than through the Congolese. But I also cannot say that this is a win-win because we simply don't know. Simply I, don't I mean, know. this is a problem in itself. 
You know, Cobus, listening to Johanna for this past hour, it it, it kind of it, it it makes me laugh a little bit because you know opinions and passions run so strongly on all sides of this debate of the Chinese, the Africans, and everybody's got an opinion that you know who's benefiting more from this broader relationship. And and one of the things that we've heard for the, for the past hour is we just don't know. There's so much ambiguity on, on where the money is and who's benefiting and how that I now start to doubt the people who who have certainty. What's your thought? Yeah, there's also there's so much secrecy, you know, kind of, and a lot a lot of the the uh, you know both both sides, you know, obviously Africa is a complicated place, and there's lots of different governments with different ways of doing things. But at the same time, it's not uh, you know kind of it's not a system like you have in in Europe or, or in the US where there's consequent publication of government data, you know, or large amounts of government data necessarily. So I mean that makes it really hard. Um, and of course, the Chinese frequently, you know, they're not saying it's, it's no. you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a race to see who's, who's more secretive between the two frequently. Well, if you've got an opinion, we'd, like, we'd love to hear from you on uh, either the Sycamines deal, on DRC relations, on aid data. We've talked about a lot of heavy stuff tonight. Uh, and so, uh, but we'd love to hear your voice and, and your participate. We've got 66,000 members of our Facebook community now. I think it's at 66, uh, it, Well, it's in the 60s now. So, uh, but we're just so excited, and it's a great, lively debate that's going on on China-Africa relations. We'd love to hear what you think. Where people are getting uh, very vocal and, and and sharing their opinions. This is a great topic to to to, to talk about. Um, and so, Facebook.com/slash China Africa Project. We also have a discussion going on now on Weibo. Thanks to our Weibo editor uh, Eric Mixter. We're just so happy that he's on board with us, and he's maintaining our page with uh, together with me. Uh, at uh, Weibo.com slash Zhongfeixiangmu, which is uh, China Africa Project in Chinese. So we're starting that as well. So that'll do it for this edition of the China and Africa podcast. Kobus, uh, if people want to follow what you're what you're doing and reading and following during the course of your week, what's the best place where they can find you? Well, I post frequently on our on our Facebook page almost every day, um, and I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesk. That's S T A D N E S Q U E. Now, Johanna, I'm going to assume that as a as a busy woman preparing your PhD thesis, that you don't spend an enormous amount of time on social media. Um, well, I think to access my work, the best thing to do is to go to my um, homepage at Roskilde University. I do post everything I publish there, and all the kind of media activities that I do are accessible there. And you know, I will encourage all listeners to to go and have a look there. And if anyone has questions or comments, they can just contact me via email. Great. So that's Johanna Janssen. Uh, you know, us Americans would probably say Johanna Janssen. Uh, mm-hmm. And so you can look her up on Google at Roskilde, R-O-S-K-I-L-D-E University uh, in Denmark. So you can do a search for her there and you'll find some of the best re, uh, re- reporting and research on the DRC. Uh, also, you did a report a couple years ago that I that I still refer to in a lot of my uh, uh, in my writing on re- natural resource extraction in Gambia and DRC, which I thought was very, very interesting as well. No, Gabon. Gabon, Gabon and DRC, which I thought was actually uh, was fascinating as well. So thank you so much for joining us on the show today. We uh, we can't wait to have you back again after you maybe next year when you file uh, your, your – your, you defend your, your thesis on uh, – uh, and then we'd love to have you back. Thank you so much for having me. Great. And then we'll yeah, be back so in, to speak to you. We'll be back again next Sunday with another edition of the China and Africa podcast. Until then, thank you so much for listening.